1: Hey, Keely! Hey, Chris. Welcome to Hurt It on the Sidelines. Heard It. Hurt it on the Sidelines with Shotgun Spratling. Spratling. Welcome to another edition of the Hurt It on the Sidelines podcast with Shotgun Spratling. Thanks again to Keely and Chris for the intro, and thanks to everyone that's returning to listen. For anyone new to the show, the Hurt It on the Sidelines podcast is part of the Peristyle podcast family. It's the place where we discuss what's going on at USC, but also try to pull the curtain back a little bit to give you an insider's perspective from the people around the USC athletic programs. On today's episode, we're talking with one of my favorite people in the industry, 24-7 Sports National Recruiting Editor Brandon Huffman. Huff is one of the OGs of the recruiting game, and he was down at the UC Underclass Camp in Mission Viejo this weekend, so we'll pick his brain about what he saw at the event, including his take on the two high-profile 2023 SoCal quarterbacks that USC is recruiting who were both in attendance. We'll also talk to Huff about how recruiting has been affected and adapted during the pandemic, the differences in the evaluation period for the current recruiting classes, and how the transfer portal is affecting high school recruiting. He discusses USC's 2022 recruiting efforts with the Trojans' five commits and where they stand with some high-profile top targets, even some on the offensive line. I know, USC fans, I know. We also break down the skill set of the big fish for the 2021 class that remains uncommitted and where USC currently stands with the number one player in the country, JT Tuimo Loao. And to wrap up the show, Huffman takes us behind the scenes of being a national recruiting analyst, including the inundation of people telling you about a kid you have to see and how he makes sense and keeps track of more than 1,000 kids he evaluates and helps rank each season. We'll now welcome in our guest on the Heard It on the Sidelines podcast, 24 7 Sports National Recruiting Editor Brandon Huffman, to give us some insights on USC's efforts on the recruiting trail as well as recruiting in general. Huff, thanks for taking the time to join us.
0: Shoddy, good to be here. Thanks for having me on.
1: Always good to see my guy, Huffman. And first off, it's great seeing you on Saturday, first time in what seems like forever. So I guess we'll start there. You know, we were at the UC Underclassmen Camp in Mission Viejo for their Southern California stop. What kind of stood out to you uh, about the camp there? You know, anyone that jumped out to you that, that kind of impressed you that USC's already is, or maybe recruiting in the future.
0: Well, I think you know when you, you look at a player like Malachi Nelson, who USC had offered, and then maybe hurt their chances with him because they offered Nico Iamolievva, and then you see those two guys side by side. I'll tell you what, you know, if Malachi Nelson does end up at Oklahoma, and the USC offer to Nico is significant enough to have him start looking at USC more. There's not a huge gap separating those two. Now, I'm not saying that it's going to be a Bryce Young, DJ, Uyunglele type of battle again for who's going to be one and two in California, but it might be. And Nico has grown in a USC family. I know UCLA was the first. He was the first and only 2023 quarterback that they offered. Uh, But I think that USC... There's an offer that resonates with him. You know, the, the first person actually told me about him was Chris Claiborne, former USC uh, Buckus Award winner and former analyst there, is not Arizona State. And so I know that USC is heavily on Nico. And, and enough where that maybe Malachi Nelson is now looking to Oklahoma. And if you would have gone by who looked better on Saturday. I think Nico was clearly the, the the top dog when it came to the quarterbacks at the position. Malachi had a decent day. Jaden Denegal was awesome as well. Uh, uh, Julian Sand and Elijah Brown, the two freshmen from San Diego and Mater Dei, both names to know. But Nico was the guy that I walked away going, this guy may be the best quarterback in California in that class. Granted, you still have Malachi. He's going to – he's right ahead of him right now. You've got Jaden Rashad up in the bay. But just watching Nico over these last few months at a couple of seven on sevens and some camps, he left there, went to a seven on seven tournament and his team won it. And he was the MVP there, too. So what a great weekend for Nico. He's six five, every bit six five. He's still on the slender side. He's a less than 200 pounds. He plays volleyball as well. He's playing it for Warren High School this year. I, I think he's one guy that USC fans should be pretty excited about their chances with, because I think, he, you know, his, his upside is off the charts.
1: Yeah, I actually saw him at a USC camp, I think when he was in between seventh and eighth grade, maybe eighth and ninth grade, um, but just saw the ball come off his hand and said, you know, that looks good. You know, keep an eye on that guy, especially he had the frame then. You know, he's put on a lot of weight compared to then. He's still, you know, pretty thin, uh, you know, but building building his body out a little bit and still has a little bit of time there. And I know Biggins is a little bit closer on this one, uh, but what's kind of your take on. The way USC handled the situation, you know, offering Nico after you know, according to Malachi Nelson, saying that you know they were only going to offer him uh, and telling his family that it was the only QB that they were going to offer. The same thing that the UCLA has done with, with Nico. Um, you know, how do you kind of how do you view those situations when you tell a player you know so, supposedly that you're the only guy we're going to offer? And then you know if you don't feel 100 percent confident, when's the time when you have to kind of pull that trigger to start offering another quarterback? You know, with the with the fact that quarterbacks are usually some of the first in the class to come off the board.
0: Well, and that's where I think you hit it is they're some of the first to come on the board, so it's almost like you don't want to wait too long because another school may have already taken your second or your third or fourth target. And I think you know USC may have learned a lesson with how DJ and Bryce's recruitment shaped up, where essentially they went after Bryce first and. know they took his commitment dj ends up with clemson then bryce flips and usc ends up without a quarterback in that class losing bryce to alabama and dj already being not to clemson so you kind of don't want to put all your eggs in one basket we've seen programs do that too often in the last few years and then it ends up really affecting their depth chart down the line because there's still the worry like with the 2020 you know with with a younger class that hey these are their top targets. I'm not going to go there. And now your entire quarterback room is a disaster. And you maybe find yourself in a position where USC last year, they had to sign two quarterbacks in the 2021 class with Miller Moss and Jackson Dar both coming in, but you, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. You kind of have to, you know, pivot a lot sooner. And I think that there are some schools that are really good at keeping guys warm. I always think back to the 2014 class at Arizona state, the way that they handled things at that time, Kyle Allen was the number one quarterback in the country. He was from Scottsdale. He, you know, was essentially everybody wanted him. He was down. I want to say Texas A&M, Arizona state and UCLA, but it really was a battle. Was Arizona state going to get him was Texas A&M going to get him. That's what Kevin Sutton really had things going on, but what Arizona State State did so well is they kept Nanny Wilkins warm. They essentially said, we've got the number one quarterback in the country in our backyard, we've been recruiting this kid, watching this kid, since before you were playing varsity football, we have to recruit him. But if he doesn't pick us, you are the first quarterback that we are offering, you're the first quarterback that we are going after. And in that time, a couple of other schools offered Nanny, but Arizona State basically spelled it out for him. And as soon as Kyle Allen picked Texas A&M, Arizona State offered Manny Wilkins. He ended up being a three-year starter there, and they handled it perfectly. And that's what I think you have to do. You have to keep somebody warm. doesn't always mean you have to offer them right away, but that was 2014. 2013 is actually when that all went down, but the 2014 class, here we are eight, nine years later. You almost have to offer a second guy just to show this is how serious we are about you. So I kind of feel like USC had to do – what they had to do in making that offer to Nico because they didn't want another situation where they maybe lost the quarterback and then didn't have anybody.
1: The recruiting has changed even in that eight or nine years there that, Offers don't mean as much as they did. It seems like every year they're devalued a little bit more. I think the the biggest issue that I have with the situation and some USC fans, and again, this is coming from Malachi, when we don't have confirmation from USC because they can't talk about recruits. But don't tell anybody that you're you're the only quarterback we're going to offer, and then go out and do it. Go out and add that extra offer out uh, later, especially. And one of the things that Biggins has said on our our boards is that. Did you really need to offer Nico at this time? Could you not have waited a couple months and then seen where the chips fell? Uh, that's kind of an interesting case there. That I think they got themselves in a little bit of trouble. They didn't have to by you know putting that out there. You're the only guy we're going to offer. You know you got to make that hard sell. But you know can, can you do it without making uh, exclamation? That's going to get you in trouble. You know if you the ultimatum. I guess you kind of given yourself.
0: The the other side of it, too, is that, you know, you don't want to wait too long, though, because Nico is starting to really blossom Mm -hmm. as a quarterback. This is his first year as a starter at Warren after starting out his high school career at Poly. He ends up having a great season. He misses the first game from a hand injury and then comes in and just sets the world on fire. So then the worry is that other schools get so far out in front with him that it doesn't matter that you offered him still relatively early in the process. I mean, we are at a point now where if you don't offer a guy – before his sophomore year, you're considered late to the party where, you know, I, I remember having this conversation with, with, speaking of Long Beach, Long Beach Millican head coach, uh, Romeo Pelham, who's the head coach there at Milliken, played at Sarah about 15 years ago and then went to St. Paul or went to Santa Fe Springs. But we were talking about, you know, his senior year. He ended up playing at Washington State. He didn't have a Pac-12 offer until his senior year. His brother, who is now a freshman at Milliken, has 20 plus offers. And just in you know, 15 years, you see the chronological time frame of offers happening that much sooner. So now it's too late if you don't offer a sophomore. <laughs> and so I, I just feel like, you know, you don't want if you're a school that really likes a kid and you want to don't want to put your eggs in one basket, you're almost having your hands forced to recruit and offer much earlier than you may have anticipated.
1: Gerard brought up a, a good uh, point over the weekend. I'm not sure if you were there when we we're we we're talking about it, but it would be fun to see how many offers versus letter of intents that are sent out. You know, before the signing day, mm-hmm. what's the ratio there? Uh, because you know, some schools are throwing out 300 offers in a class now. For a class that at max is supposed to be twenty five, so uh, it, it's kind of crazy how many offers are being thrown out there, and that it, it is devalued. It's not something that is automatically something that that a player can you know jump on and say, yeah, I want to be a part of your class. And then some coaches are like, whoa, 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 why, why don't you take your time and think about it a little bit? We just wanted to you know get to know you a little bit with this offer. So it's one of the things that has changed, and I wanted to kind of t- kind of get to that. You know, you've been back on the road covering some events after we went, you know, most of a year without the high profile regional national events, the underclassmen camp uh, that we just went to, the opening, the All-American Games. What have you seen as the biggest changes in recruiting during the pandemic and this extended dead period?
0: I think probably the biggest thing is just how many schools have been way more hesitant to offer quarterbacks, period. Mm-hmm. I think we're seeing a lot of offers still going out That said, there's been way less quarterback offers going out. And it's interesting because you will see schools offer a freshman or a sophomore who's never played a snap of varsity football, hasn't played a snap of high school football, get an offer. But if a junior has played, and he's only played for a year but hasn't had a chance – to throw for a school he won't get an offer now i realize that the offers don't mean what they used to be there's committable offers and there's non-committable offers or hood relations offers as they're often referred to but i think what's fascinating to me is how few quarterback offers have been extended in 2022 in 2023 because coaches haven't had a chance to watch these guys throw you know when you look at a guy like a malik murphy everybody knew about him when he was a freshman so in when in the spring of 2019 when he was a freshman Coaches were able to go watch him throw when they were there watching Doug Brunfield uh, throw. Justin Martin was also at Sarah at the time. He was a freshman before he mm-hmm. transferred to Englewood. They got a chance to see those guys throw. But now some of the names that are kind of just popping up on the scene, they haven't had the luxury of an evaluation period. They haven't had the luxury of a camp period. So it's been harder for those guys to be seen when there's no opportunity to throw and coaches are a little more hesitant to offer quarterbacks. At the same time, I think the other thing we're seeing is a lot more non-committable offers going out. It's a lot of, hey, yeah, we're interested in you, we like you, but if we see you in person you do not match your description that we thought you are, do not try to commit to us. And yes, there's been a rise in those kind of offers over the last few years, but never more so now than when guys have been basically getting offered sight
1: unseen. scene. Mm-hmm. You look at it and you you see those offers being thrown out, not committable offers, but certain positions, it seems like offers may be a little bit slower, some positions where you can just offer a guy just based on athleticism. What particular positions do coaches need to see some game film and, and see guys in person before they can you know make that offer or make that jump to now it's a committable offer?
0: I think offensive linemen are one of them. You know, it's one thing to say that you're 6'6", 6'7". It's another thing to actually be 6'6", or 6'7". And you're always shocked at how many guys say they're 6'6", 6'7", and they measure in at 6'3", 6'4". So if you're a coach and you need offensive tackles badly, you may not offer a guy until you get to see, can this guy actually play offensive tackle? You know, I want to see how big he truly is. I want to see how athletic he truly is. I think defensive linemen is kind of the same thing. You don't want to offer a defensive lineman Who's dominant just on film because he might still be five foot eleven. Now, not to say that they can't be good six feet, five eleven defensive tackles. There's a pretty good defensive lineman in your backyard playing in the NFL who doesn't necessarily have the optimal defensive tackle size in a guy like Aaron Donald. But I think there's certain positions where coaches just really want to see it. how big are they? How big are they really compared to what they're seeing? Are they as long as they look? Maybe they don't look at as long. They don't look as strong. They don't look as athletic on film. We want to see them in person. But then I also think quarterbacks. It's a matter of, you know, you, I remember going up to Lake Stevens in the spring of 2014 When Jacob Easton was a sophomore and he did what was essentially a pro day and there were six different Pac-12 schools all with their iPads there. I think one head coach and five OCs were there and they were basically picking what plays they wanted to see him throw, what what routes they wanted to see him throw, what uh, coverages they wanted the defense to play so that he could throw against them. And they just wanted a true evaluation. Even though he had good film, they still want to see how does it take to coaching? How does he take to instruction? How does he take to progressions and reading defenses and whatnot? And so there's certain things that you just can't see on film until you get a chance to really be in the room with the guy or be on the field with the guy.
1: And that's something that coaches obviously haven't been able to do with no on-campus, uh, you know, no official visits, so no on-campus contact there. Do you see the potential of the fact that players haven't been able to get on campus, kind of get that full vibe, you know, with the, you know, full student body there and coaches not getting players on campus to be able to pick their brain in a in a room to get them on the whiteboard. I mean, maybe you can do that over Zoom, but but then also to get them on the field and work them out at a camp. Do you think that's going to lead to more players potentially entering the transfer portal in the next few years just because they don't have that true sense of the other side just because of the pandemic and the the dead period that we've had?
0: Yes, and here's what I'm going to say. I think a lot of these college coaches that are going on these tirades and you know saying all this stuff about the transfer portal being bad for football, a don't recruit any transfers. And if you think it's as bad for football, don't recruit any transfers and don't accept any transfers. Also, coaches don't ever leave for another job that was better paying, better opportunity, better salary, better title, because you're leaving at the first sign of adversity. Hey, I'm not making enough money in this job. I need to go get make, make more money at a bigger conference at a bigger school. Once you do that, then you can say everything you want about the transfer portal, because these are the same coaches that are sitting on these Zoom calls with these kids and pressuring the kid. Hey, we only have three spots at receiver. We've got two committed. You either commit now, or we're going to give that spot to somebody else. And they're pressuring the kid To make a commitment, then they seem shocked and at the first time. Hey, maybe you sold the kid a bag of goods. College coaches were full of crap a lot of the time, (laughs) believe it or not. And, you know, I've always been pro-kid, anti – coach when it comes to the he said she said because these are adults a lot of times taking advantage of the young kids that are making the decisions. and so i think there's going to be a ton of situations in the 2022 season or i guess the 2021 season the 2022 year where guys are going into the portal because they had to make commitments sight unseen they had to make commitments without ever really getting an opportunity to know these coaches that were recruiting them but they were pressured because it's either commit to this school and have a great option or don't commit, and then you know what your other options are, I think we're gonna only see the beginning of the surface being scratched on what the transfer portal is truly going to look like.
1: I think we're seeing a little bit of that in basketball, where you've seen guys that transferred last year during the offseason as grad transfer or whatever, you know, making that jump again, you know, getting a second transfer in two years because they didn't get a chance to, to visit the schools and maybe they got there and like this is not necessarily the right fit that I thought it was going to be. So, you know, how are you we seeing the transfer portal and this new one time transfer rule? How is it changing the game in recruiting, both for transfers and also the high school kids?
0: Well, I think it's becoming such an easier route for college coaches to recruit because maybe in some cases these guys played at the college that they were at. Maybe in some of these cases the guys were in a really loaded room at their certain position and these guys still have the ability. They just couldn't overcome the really good, talented players that were ahead of them. But I think college coaches still a little bit more confidence in recruiting a 20-year-old than they maybe do a 17-year-old. And here's why. I think in a lot of cases – guys fall in love with the recruiting process and you know i'll blame a lot of it on the recruiting industry we cover these kids wall-to-wall non-stop for three to four years in some cases we're you know putting up articles about their visits about their unofficial visits about their in-home visits you name it and they fall in love with the recruiting process more than they fall in love with football they go take an unofficial visit to a school and it's all about the photo shoot rather than am i going to fit into this school when you're 22 though, or 21 or 20, when you've been in college for two years, the recruiting process is no longer about the five official visits. It's no longer about the photo shoots. It's, oh crap, this is my last chance. I better make it happen, or I'm going to be bounced from division one football. And my chances of playing at the next level will become that much less. And so I think coaches now realize, hey, we're getting them when they're a little bit more serious about football than maybe they were in 17 or 18. Maybe they didn't make the adjustment necessary. I think it's fascinating if you look at Arizona they've got I think, five players that have transferred back to the state of Arizona mm-hmm. that were from Arizona high school players that ended up at other schools outside of Arizona. And now they're all coming back. Now this time they're like, Hey, I got to make a better business decision and it doesn't hurt to be back in your family. But I think college coaches are way more willing to recruit the transfer portal that they keep talking crap about <laughs> because they now are getting a different kind of player that might be a little bit more serious than the high schoolers that they're
1: going after. And they get a chance to, to potentially see those players, getting some game tape on them against college athletes versus, you know, is that that guy that they're going against on the other side, is that defensive end that the offensive lineman's blocking, is he got any talent at all? We don't really know just watching the game tape, but now you look at it and you go, okay, I know what this guy can do from from his game tape uh, on the other side, so you can get a better comparison, I think, there as well. We've seen much fewer commitments at this point than we had last year. Maybe the transfer portal's playing into that. But do you think it's more the recruits wanting to take visits or the coaching staff slow playing things to try to get kids on campus for an in-person evaluation, knowing that things are, are supposed to open up next month?
0: Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think you're looking at schools that they're not pushing for commitments nearly as much. You know, people forget that with the 2021 class, while those guys weren't able to get on the road last spring or during the summer a lot of those guys were proactive and took official visits. i'm sorry unofficial visits when they were sophomores so they were able to get to a lot of these campuses. but now you're looking at juniors they were freshmen they were probably pimple faced freshmen that were playing on the freshman team at their schools rather than being high-end recruits so a lot of colleges didn't know about it didn't have them come to campus in 2019. so now there's a lot of questions how big are they how athletic are they we want to see them in person but I, I think there was a fascinating graphic that Bud Elliott had yesterday, Mm -hmm. that through the first 10 days in May in 2020, there were 130 commits. Through 2021, there was 27 commitments. And so I I think what it's telling you is that everybody's skeptical, players, recruits, coaches – They all want to be able to see what they're getting themselves into before they make that one final decision on where they're going to school. And so I think you're you're seeing the 2022 class is the most effective. Yeah, the 2021 class lost the official visits or 2022 is in line to get those back. But I also think that 2022 is playing from behind far more than the 2021 class was. And so I think that's why you're seeing there a, a little bit more of a slower beginning to this particular recruiting cycle.
1: And I think you see in that with USC as well. They had a number of players that were committed early during that pandemic. They actually built some momentum with the new defensive staff and were able to go into the summer and you know have some momentum there. But this, this year they have five commitments so far. Any adjustments you've seen from the USC coaching staff and the way they've recruited during the pandemic going from that 2021 class to now the 2022s that they're looking at?
0: well I still think they've been aggressive with with the 2022 class and I think you're seeing it in 23 and 24 they have they've offered quite a few younger guys but I think you look at you know from a quarterback standpoint to me I think the most fascinating part was that they took a commitment from Devin Brown back when they did I think that was what in, in the fall of 2020 when he was in his junior year, might have been before the fall of his junior year. And knowing it was going to be hard to get a quarterback in the class when you already had Miller Moss. And at the time, I want to say Jake Garcia was still committed. This might have, mm-hmm. I think Devin Brown committed before Jake Garcia had flipped and before Jackson Dart had had signed with the, or committed to USC. So in, in this case, you know, you get a quarterback a little bit early, but you also get him from a state that was playing football in the fall. So rather than wait to the spring of his junior year. For a California kid, they went and offered a kid in a state that was playing. So I think they were just, you know, getting all their hands on deck. What if there wasn't going to be a season in California in the 2020 year, which would obviously be part of the 2021 season? So they got the commitment early. I think that they were addressing issues. Let's make sure we get birds in hand before we strike out or so we don't strike out. What I really found fascinating is the last couple of classes they've done a little bit more damage in Texas. And this year, yeah, they're still recruiting guys in Texas, they're still recruiting guys out of state, but the majority of their commitments seem to be and the majority of their targets seem to be in that Pac-12 footprint right now. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that's, you know, probably a, a little bit more of you, you know, the aggressive side if you will, on USC is that they're staying aggressive, but they're doing it more close to home because it's easier for a kid in Arizona or Utah or Nevada and obviously in California to just do a quick drive-through campus. You
1: know, they've really attacked the the Texas area and put out a bunch of offers there. But I feel like, the, and they're, they're on a number of top lists as well right now with kids from around the nation, and I feel like they're still going to go hard after the California kids. And we, we've had some questions on our boards about why are they not recruiting locally at all? I think it's because you know they they didn't have a season to to watch. So, you know, Texas did play and some of these other other states did play, so you you see the tape on those guys that were juniors, that are going in their senior year and you go, "Okay, now we know what we got." California, you were waiting around to the spring to kind of see some of those. So, I think that's been a, a part of it as well as the their recruiting strategy as far as going out nationally and then coming back locally, which is what it kind of feels like. Right now, they do have five commits, you know, including the five-star Demonte Jackson, top 5 player. Bishop Gorman, cornerback Fabian Ross, Servite Jumbo receiver, tight end Kian Burnett, Arizona QB Devin Brown, like you talked about, and Katie Texas linebacker Ty Kana. What have you, been your impressions of the USC commitments that you've been able to see live either this year or, or in the past if you haven't got a chance to see many of them uh, so far this season?
0: Well, with Fabian Ross, we got a chance to see him a lot last spring and even earlier in this spring on the seven-on-seven circuit playing for ground zero. Uh, really liked him. He's a top 247 member. Obviously, Damani Jackson is, you know, the alpha and the omega of this class. He's the best player in California. Keon Burnett, though, that's the guy that I really like a lot. And I think that, you know, Keon kind of became victim of two things. One, he was at Jay Sarah as a sophomore, so when he transferred to Servite, It was right before the pandemic, and then the season kept getting pushed back. But then two, if you go look at Servite, he's got Tatara McMillan, who's one of the top two, three players in the state in 2022. You also have quarterback Noah Fafita, who's committed to Arizona. And so those two guys had played together on the seven-on-seven circuit. They played youth football together with the Juice County Buckeyes. You know, Keon, as close as he is to those guys, he was a little bit more out of sight, out of mind, but... You watch the play he made, the DK Metcalf like play he made this season. You see the athleticism. You see just you know how quick he is, how fast and how physical he is. And you know he's got Pac-12 ties too. His dad played at Arizona. He was part of those great Desert Swarm defenses in the early '90s. And I think Keon is a player that is a really good player. He just happens to be overshadowed on his own team, and that's not uncommon, as we've seen in Southern California with so many superpower teams, especially in the Trinity League. You, you look in, you know, even if Fabian Ross. As good as Fabian Ross is, he's the fourth-best player in the state of Nevada, in the composite third-best player in the state of Nevada per 24-7, and the two guys ahead of him? his high school teammates, Cyrus Moss and Zion Branch. So it's sometimes it's hard to be the best player on your own team when you have elite dudes, let alone be the best player in your own class.
1: Yeah, so what have you kind of made of those guys and maybe what other USC targets have stood out to you this spring uh, from the guys that you have been able to see? You know, obviously USC isn't able to get out and see, didn't have a spring evaluation period in the high schools, but we have been able to get out and see, see them a little bit. So what have you made of some of the USC commits and the targets? What have you seen from them this spring?
0: Well, I think you've seen some just elite players. You know, one of those is offensive lineman, Josh Connerly. It's been interesting. It's not a great offensive line class out west, but two of the best in the region, Ernest Green and Josh Connerly, are players that USC is doing really well with. Obviously, Ernest Green comes from St. John Bosco. His teammate, good friend Maximus Gibbs, signed with USC in 2021. You know, probably an easier target to get. Vanna Josh Connerly, who's in Seattle, has got an offer from Washington. He's got schools like Alabama, Michigan, Texas, Oklahoma after him as well. But USC is one of the schools on his short list. And he's been the best offensive lineman that I've seen on any camp and at any season or any play that played the season uh, out West. And I think he's a guy that they're doing really well. with. But then you also look at a Zion Branch. You know, Zion Branch is. A good football player. He's got three crystal balls for USC. Ohio State and Oregon are right there, too. He's taking visits to both those. And then USC gets the last shot in the month of June with him. Are you going to count out Dante Williams for a kid that, you know, let's call it what it is. Bishop Gorman, Las Vegas. That's a suburb of Los Angeles. That's a suburb of Southern (laughs) California anymore. You know, there is no Pac-12 program in the state of Nevada, but that's a Pac-12 state. And Bishop Gorman is, is a school that you want to recruit, and you know not only do you have a chance to get Zion Branch, but if you get Zion, you got a great chance to get his brother Zechariah, who just ran a 10-300 last weekend, one of the fastest football players in the country. So both those guys are really good. It was a limited role, but David Bailey a player that I think USC is doing really well for. I think you can make a case, even though he has taken an official visit to Oregon State, which is kind of random, Stanford and USC are probably the top two schools for David Bailey. And you watch some of those early games that Modern played this year. He looked really good. Javante Barnes, a player that I think USC is doing really, really well with, who's also from Las Vegas, not a Bishop Gorman kid, but he's at Desert Pines. USC is the crystal ball leader for him. Saw him out in Vegas at the Pylon 7-on-7 a couple weeks ago. He looked really good. So it's not just the commits that USC is doing really well with. There's a lot of, uh, of top targets that they're doing really well with. And the one thing that a lot of those guys have in common is they are West Coast kids that aren't as you know open to leaving the West as some of the previous classes. They're looking maybe to stay a little bit closer to home.
1: I, I saw Barnes last year at, at an event. was really impressed with him, and I think he was, wasn't was even a sophomore at the time. So you know he's a guy that – could help boost that running back group, but I know USC fans are going to be really excited to hear about the two offensive linemen that USC is doing well with. That was the thing with the 2020 class. They brought in some offensive linemen, but they haven't got their top offensive line targets for now four or five years so, you know, the 2020 class, they brought in six offensive linemen, but it was the worst USC recruiting class in modern history. How have they been able to turn things around from that woeful class to put together the number two Pac-12 recruiting class last year and currently sitting at number two right now, I believe, behind Oregon as well? So how did they turn things around since that 2020 class?
0: Well, I think, you know, you can say it's all Dante Williams. you know, And he obviously, there's a heavy dose of Dante Williams that went into the 2021 recruiting class. It's not all Dante Williams, but we do have to give credit where it's absolutely due. There's a reason he's been the Pac-12 Recruiter of the Year for the last two years at two different schools. The guy's energy is insane. The way he's able to recruit, the way he's able to connect with so many of these guys. And then not only that, he does a great job coaching them in the fall. He's not a guy who's only about recruiting. He's recruiting plus X's and O's. I think you, you know you have to look no further than Dante Williams to see where so much of the tide turned in recruiting from 2020 to 2021. But I also don't think it is just Dante Williams. I think you look at kind of the, the new infusion of Todd Orlando and Craig Nivar, you know, what they brought to the table, but then also look at some of the grad assistants that USC has that have stuck around that have, you know, been a part of the USC program for a long time. Vianne Talamayval, Lanny Vandermade, uh, even Armand Hawkins. He played at Idaho, but a lot of ties to USC with his brother, Chris, having played there. And you get a lot of young energy on that staff. And so maybe where you have some older guys that are all about X's and O's and about coaching football on Saturdays and recruiting may not be that jam, there still is a constant presence of USC and some of their targets recruitment because of the younger, more energetic guys. And I mean, sure, you could say it's about you know, the marketing efforts. It's about the the video and graphic design efforts. But at the end of the day, it still comes back to good old-fashioned hard work on the recruiting front by assistant coaches and by personnel, Marshall Charrington, bringing him down from Cal to USC, back to his alma mater, and just seeing what he did, knowing how many kids talked about Marshall when he was at Cal, and he was a director of recruiting strategy. He wasn't a position coach. He wasn't an assistant coach, but he was a player that was getting a lot of mention from so many people about Cal. Now he's back in his element. He's back at his alma mater. He's back at the program at the school that he was a, a manager for, where he went to school. And you're seeing just this rise in Northwest guys that Marshall had great contacts with when he was at Cal. And you, you put him in with guys like Zelania Vandermaid and Vianney and with Armand Hawkins and all their ties throughout the Southland and throughout the state of California. And it's no coincidence that USC's recruiting efforts have strengthened since.
1: Yeah, they've definitely invested in the the recruiting side of it you know, with the the graphic designers, with the extra bodies in that uh recruiting room. So, you know, they they're doing making a lot of the right moves, but it always comes back to winning. If you win, then you get your your choice, especially at USC, and they've been able to to cherry pick at times when they've been really good. And that includes in the Seattle area, you know, going in and getting Taylor Mays or Max Brown. USC has a number of offers out in Washington this year including Connerly but it's not necessarily they, a place they've really recruited hard all the time, instead kind of doing that cherry-picking. But Washington's an area that has a you know rising talent level. What, what has been the impetus in the growing number of top 247-caliber players that we've seen coming out of that state? Does USC maybe even need to ramp up their efforts in Washington?
0: Yeah, because if you look back historically, USC has done a great job in the state when they really pursued somebody, when they really wanted somebody. Mm -hmm. Last year, they got, obviously, Julian Simon to commit. You know, they had Max Brown. They've had, you know, going back to an earlier, Travis Claridge. I mean, they've had guys that would – you mentioned Taylor Mays, you know, another player. And I think that – you know, I, I wrote a story on this a few years ago. If you look at when the Seattle Seahawks won the Super Bowl in 2013, that's when so many of these guys that in the 2022 class, it was the 2014 C- or Super Bowl, but it was the 2013 season. These guys were in third, fourth grade, and the rise in junior football and the rise in youth football in the state really took off. And now you have guys like J.T. Tui, blah, blah, blah. you know, guys like Sam Heward, who USC was still recruiting hard last year. You have players that are becoming household names much earlier from the state of Washington because – The football has gotten so much better up here, and it's a Pac-12 state. Not only do you want to recruit Pac-12 states, not only do you want to recruit in the Pac-12 footprint to strengthen your own program, but if you can also cripple a Pac-12 program that this is their primary recruiting ground, all the better if you're a Pac-12 school. And I think that you take the the rise in talent in the state, you take the rise in just quality depth in the state, and then you take the fact that, hey, Washington's been a program that's won the Pac-12 twice in the last five years. Washington has been a program that has given USC some fits on the football field in the last five or six years. So let's try to turn it around. Washington has no problem recruiting in Southern California. Now USC needs to do the same thing. In Washington, And I think getting guys like Julian Simon being on the short list for guys like Josh Connerly and Tobias Merriweather and, and with Malik Ogbo and, and other players, I think it's showing that, hey, you've got a real chance to make some moves in the state and continue to recruit well in the Pac-12 footprint, also while hurting another Pac-12 program.
1: And the potential of bringing in... One more guy from Seattle, who you shortly mentioned, but JT Tuomo-Lowell, the number one player, still uncommitted from the the twenty twenty one class, wanted to wait and take his visits because, like you said, about a lot of players in that class, you know that they had taken visits. He wasn't able to because he's a basketball player. He was playing, continuing his season during the spring, so he wasn't out on, on a bunch of those visits like everyone else. He's the number one player. Obviously, everyone down here in Southern California knows about Corey Foreman. He's the number one in the 24-7 composite rankings. Just how good is JT Tuomo-Lowell?
0: I mean, he's a phenomenal player, and I think when you watch him as a tight end, you see athleticism from a 275-pounder that you don't necessarily see every day. You see the way he runs, how nobody's able to catch up with him, how they can't tackle him, how he's this big, strong, physical guy. And then you go see that he's got two Pac-12 basketball offers. Now, granted, both those schools that offered him, I think that was more window dressing than anything because both those schools that offered him for basketball were already recruiting him for football. And those schools knew he was never going to give up football, so that scholarship wasn't going to count. <laughs> but he plays on an elite AAU basketball team with guys like Paula Banchero going to Duke. He had another couple teammates on the team went to Arizona and Kentucky, their point guard. Another two-sport two guy, Drew Carter, went to Colorado to play football and basketball. He's a high-level hooper as well. So you see the athleticism and the way he's been able to translate that onto the football field. You know, he's a great pass rusher, but he can drop into coverage. I've seen him play safety at times. He can play a linebacker role where he's covering tight ends, he's covering running backs, staying with him stride for stride. He can body up a a receiver, but then run with the receiver. He's just kind of this unique blend of strength and size and speed and athleticism. But, I mean, can you imagine if you're USC – in a year where you got a guy like Drake Jackson, who's coming back and likely going to the NFL after this year, and you lose Drake Jackson and you would have the potential of not just having Corey Foreman plug in, but maybe a JT on the opposite side of him plugging in. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that Alabama's been doing the last year this is what USC did in the 2000s under Pete Carroll, where they would get it wouldn't be uncommon for them to get you know two of the top three players in the country. But when you can get two of the top three players in the country, the top two players on, according to 24-7, and they're both elite pass rushers in a conference that hasn't necessarily been known for great defense these last couple of years, that could be a very significant type of pickup. And USC very much in the mix for him. He will get a visit from him in June. His mom's originally from Southern California. She grew up in Oxnard, went to Channel Islands High School. She grew up not far from Kerry Colbert. They go back several years. He's also got ties to Ray Malaluga. In fact, the first college football game that JT ever went to was when he was five. He went out to go see Ray when Ray was a senior at USC, playing at Washington State. So there's a lot of significant family ties there as well that won't have me rule out USC whatever, whatsoever. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you, you talk about him, you know, and, and Corey Foreman replacing Drake Jackson, but there's the potential of all three of those guys being on the line at the same time next year, at least in a pass rush situation. I mean, that's just scary to the to see that. And that's maybe that that looks a lot like the Ohio State defensive lines. With the Bosa brothers and some of the guys that they had up there with Chase Young as well, and just being able to rotate guys in that are constantly that you're afraid of as an offense uh, of being able to to block on the other side, so it, it could be a very unique situation. and USC fans can obviously dream big, and the fact that they have stayed in the top five, you know, definitely gives them an opportunity. We'll see how it kind of plays out. How could you see him and Foreman kind of working together? Because some people were a little bit afraid, like, oh, they play the same position. I don't know that he would want to come. To USC with Foreman already there.
0: Pain. That's what I would see. It'd be pain for opposing offenses if those two guys ended up on the same defense. And part of that's because which one are you going to focus your efforts on? Which one are you (laughs) going to stop? I mean, let's just assume that Drake Jackson is already going to be a problem to block. Now you've got Corey Foreman or JT kind of running free. Now let's say Drake's off to the NFL and you got two years of Corey and and JT. Who are you going to stop? Who are you going to prioritize? You prioritize one, the other causes a problem. So that's one of those good problems to have, but I think you just bring in two very different types, believe it or not, they're different type of pass rushers. One uses just, you know, his straight speed and his quickness to get, in. he's strong and, and Corey, but I think JT is a, a stronger player and, you know, he can come, he could slide inside be more of a three-tick. You can stand him up a little bit more. I think you can use both in very different roles with very similar type of results.
1: How unique is what JT has done as far as waiting as a top five, top ten prospect, not past just the early signing period now, but past, you know, national sign date and, and going potentially going into the summer here before he makes a decision when so many players one want to be an early enrollee if they can, but then if not that, at least get on campus for that summer semester to to be able to work out with the team and go through summer workouts.
0: I mean, I'm old enough to remember when I think it was Eric Lorig waited till June or July. He was down to the four Pac-12 California schools and ended up picking Stanford, but he waited a long time. But he wasn't the number one player in the country. There wasn't a guy that needed to wait as long as he did, but yet he did because he was still trying to find the right fit. Now you take JT, the, the uniqueness of there not being a Spring evaluation period last spring for him to go on the road and, and to take unofficials. Then you wipe out the June official visit period where he may have had the opportunity to see some schools, then didn't get to because there was none. Then you don't have him take visits in the season. Then you don't have him take visits in the fall. Then you don't have him take visits in the winter. And then you don't have him take visits in the spring. And now here we are, and there's a number of guys that are already on their college campuses finishing their first semester of schools. And he hasn't even made a decision because with June, he's got graduation, he's got basketball. It probably won't even be till the mid to late part of June that he even starts taking those official visits. And so instead of having six months on campus, he might have six weeks on campus, maybe less than that before fall practice starts. So this is as unique a recruitment as I could ever remember in my times covering this.
1: So all right, give us the latest. What's the latest with him? What's the latest update? And and what has to happen for USC to to potentially reel in this final big fish as Clay Helton likes to call him, to to be able to add him to potentially to the 2021 class?
0: Well, I think USC just has to stay the course. They got to get him to Mm -hmm. campus, and that's going to be big. USC is one of the three schools that he has visited that his family has also been to, whether in unofficial capacity or just been to campus. But his family hasn't been to Alabama and Ohio State. So those two. He's adamant he's going to take visits to largely so his family can see both of those schools. But USC wants to get him on campus. It wouldn't hurt to have him on campus when, you know, there's some 2022 guys there. Uh, At the same time, you don't want it to be all about spreading yourself too thin, where you don't get to give him as much time as you want to give him. So I think USC just has to say the course and be willing to wait because this decision is still probably six to eight weeks away if you're USC and you're watching him and seeing what he's doing and you know that there's still a chance to get him, you let him come when he wants to come. You don't pressure him to make a decision. You don't pressure him to say, hey, you're going to be the only official visit that we're going to let you take. We're not going to let you visit those other four schools. You just have to stay the course.
1: Well, it'll be an interesting one for sure. And helping thanks so much for the time. Got a couple more questions for you, though. Just I want to take take our listeners behind the scenes a little bit. Tell me about being a national recruiting guy. What's the toughest part about, you know, trying to keep up with, with so many kids each season?
0: Well, I think there's, you know, the, the big part is that there's two, you know, it's the the rise in social media, the rise in in huddle where, you know, if you've been around recruiting a long time or you play football early on, you know, in the, in the 90s or in the 80s, if you're a dude, your high school coach made film for you. You didn't have the capability of making a, hi- a highlight tape when you were a freshman. You didn't have that capability. Your coach maybe made film for three or five guys on his team that he thought were guys. And even then, you still had to get that video to a college. You had to get it to the right eye, to the right hands. Now, everybody's got a huddle film. Everybody thinks that he's a Division I recruit as a you know because he's got a huddle film. I mean, my own son, he played varsity as a freshman. And when I say played varsity, I mean, he was on the travel roster but didn't play a game. He's already getting letters from college coaches who I know for a fact aren't doing their research. They're just seeing his name in some kind of national database and sending him letters. But the flip side is that there are kids that haven't played a down of varsity football, that aren't good enough to play varsity football, but they're already wanting the stars. They want offers. They're even tweeting about no stars, no offers. You're going to fill me. And so everybody (laughs) thinks that they're a division one football player when the reality is there's still only 3000 guys are going to sign with division one schools. I mean, think about it. If a school is going to bring in one quarterback a year, you're looking at 125 to 130 schools, they're going to take a quarterback. But every high school football team in the United States of America has a quarterback. Every one of those guys would love to probably play football at the next level, but the demographics and the odds in those numbers aren't great. So what you really have to battle – you know, it's kind of like I remember talking to a college coach one time about a junior day. And he said, we have 150 guys that come to campus for a junior day. 10 of them we really want, we want to recruit. And the other 140 we're invited because we need to stay on their good side of their coaches. Those 140 are the ones we have to spend all of our time catering to. And we can't even spend the time with the 10 guys we really want because the 140 kids who aren't good enough to play here want to know when am I going to get an offer? When can I do my photo shoot and all that? So I, I think you're, you're seeing just this expectation that, Everybody's a division one recruit, and you know, we want to focus on the guys that are the big time players the JTs, the Corey Foremans. But you spend so much time answering questions of the guys that aren't good enough to play at a Division One school. And it's trying to balance. Like, You don't want to have a guy slip through the cracks. You don't want to have a situation where a player is better than maybe some of the guys that are more high profile, that may play at bigger programs, that may have more attention right now. You want to make sure you're doing all your homework so you still end up watching the huddle videos that these players are sending you just to make sure you're not missing out on anybody.
1: So what you're telling me is that there's a reason why my coach never cut up my film for me and, and made my <laughs> clips in high school? Is that what you're saying?
0: No, I'm saying it was all a technical issue that they oh. just didn't have the right bandwidth or the tape to, to be able to it. So yours was on the editing room floor. They just ran out of video tape. <laughs>
1: That's what it must have been. Uh, when you talk about the, the fact there's 3,000 kids are signing – you you're evaluating probably a thousand fifteen hundred players every year, and then you go into the meetings you know with the other guy the the national regional guys and kind of go about their rankings. How do you go about evaluating a thousand to fifteen hundred players every year?
0: It, that's a good question because it's not easy. What we've done more in the last few years at twenty four seven is we've done a lot of position auditing so In years past, where you may have presented your guys in your region as, hey, okay, here's my guys in the West. Here's my guys in the South. Let's put them all together. Well, my guy in the West is better than your guy in the South because this guy was from the West and your guy was from the South and this guy was better. So naturally, this guy needs to be better. Well, yes, we're still presenting guys in our region, but at the same time, I'm stuck with maybe a position group to evaluate and they're not all guys that are node-readers. There may be guys from my region that, and it's like, man- you're good because of where you're available, where you're at, but you'd be the 15th best lineman in Georgia. You'd be the 12th best quarterback in Texas. You know, you, it's like a lot of times guys are getting recruited heavily because, the you know, they, they say your best ability sometimes is availability. You're available and you're in that region, but you put yourself up against other guys. So we've been doing a lot more of the positional auditing to kind of weed out the regional bias and now say, hey, let's rank these best linemen against each other. Let's rank these best quarterbacks against each other. And everybody takes their position group, but then everybody still, the whole nine of us on the rankings council, will all cross-check all of those guys to make sure we have the best representation of what our rankings are going to look like by now cross-checking three times, four times, five times before we sign off on a recruiting class.
1: Now, do you go about it and you just want to, Trust your eyes and look at film and and see what you can see yourself and kind of evaluate that versus the other players and you know just your knowledge of it. Or are you taking into account you know what the high school coaches, what the seven on seven coaches, you know what even guys like, like me or Keely or, or Chris Trevino are telling you from the team sites about players that we've seen? How how much do you kind of try to take in all those other aspects, or you kind of try to stay kind of focused on, on what your eyes can see yourself?
0: Well it's a little bit of all of that you know we take a lot of the team sites into consideration because they are seeing guys At events. They're seeing guys at camps. They're seeing guys at games. You know, I know that you and Chris and and Keeler are going to games every Friday night. You're shooting ISO video of those guys. And that becomes huge because you're getting a chance to see what's not on the huddle. You're getting a chance to see what maybe we aren't seeing that only the highlights are presenting. You're getting to see body language. You're getting to see how those players are with their teammates, how those players are with their coaches. And you're getting to see aspects that we won't get to. We're talking to college coaches. We're talking to seven on seven and high school coaches. Now, you're not always getting the, the most unbiased is a, is a way of putting it, the most objective opinion, you're getting a lot of all oh, He's a guy. Like, yeah, but you said that about these previous nine guys, and then there's no, but this guy is a guy. It's like, so those guys weren't guys, so you were wrong. No, he's just a guy. You got to kind of take what some of the coaches and trainers and seven on coaches say with a grain of salt. At the same time, you have to take what the college coaches saying with a grain of salt and the team side people. You even have to take what me and Greg and, and Blair are saying with, with a grain of salt at times because. We're not infallible. We're, we get guys wrong, too. But you try to take as many opinions as possible into consideration because they may have seen something that you're not seeing. They may have not seen something that you thought you saw on film. They may have seen it in a different way or a different angle or a different situation, different context. So you take as many. I, it's no different than the NFL draft where college coaches will sit there and they'll they'll fight for their guy. But these coaches, these NFL scouts are talking to as many people as they possibly can just to get as many opinions as they can to go along with what their eyes are seeing. And so I think it's important for us to be open to multiple different kind of ideas about a player because it gives you a pretty well-rounded context – for said player, but at the end of the day, you do know that your eye is going to be kind of the final the final check mark, if you will, of if you like a kid or if you rank a kid high, it's still going to come down to your own eyes. But you will take into consideration what other people are seeing for sure.
1: Since you brought up the NFL draft, what gives you the most sense of validation in this industry? Is it seeing guys when they go that you've ranked as a five star and they end up as an NFL draft pick or going on to successful NFL careers, or is it seeing kind of the stats of it kind of play out and that stars do matter? Um, What gives you a, a sense of validation yourself?
0: I mean, ultimately that's what we're kept score on. It's the NFL Mm -hmm. draft. It's when you rank a guy in the top five or the top 32 as a five star. It's because you think he's going to be a first rounder. So when you see 10, five stars go in the first round, Hey, I got it right. Sure. There's going to be no brainers that are like, Hey, this guy could come out right now. He's going to be a first round pick top five pick. He's that good. But it's also, you know, the, the, success that they have in college. You know, when you see a, a guy like a Najee Harris that you rank high and, you know, you have people tell with all due respect to Stephen Carr and his people and Cam Akers and their people, that was one that I took a lot of grief for. And granted, maybe it was because Najee was at Alabama, but last I checked, Cam Akers didn't have the career at Florida state. He was hoping to Stephen Carr. Didn't have the career at SC. He was hoping to Najee stayed the course, ended up the dope Walker award winner, win a national championship. Alabama's all time leading rusher in a first round pick. You know, you have ones that, You are just basically you're betting on yourself. And so you have guys that maybe other fan bases don't like because their fan, their their, their guy's better. Their guy they think is better should be rated higher. And at the end of the day, nobody tells you, hey, you were right on the ones that we thought you were wrong on. It's still a matter (laughs) of, well, you still got this one wrong. You know, so you, you, you kind of take the validation when people don't say anything to you because then you kind of know, all right, that's when I got this one right.
1: Is there your best told you so moment? Is there one player that you had to fight for to get into the rankings or you, you try to keep telling people and they just like, no, I don't see it. And then he went on to to have a really successful career.
0: I, I would say that, you know, there, there's a couple guys and, and one was mostly more of a college guy. He ended up being the all time winningest quarterback in college history. And I was the only one in the recruiting industry that ranked. Kellen Moore as a four star. And I had gone to see him play when he was a junior in the state championship game against uh, Ferndale high school and Jake Locker. Everybody was talking about Jake Locker. He was committed to Washington and all anybody wanted to talk about was Jake Locker. And I walked out of the Tacoma dome knowing that Prosser lost, but I watched this little lefty and thought, man, this guy gets into the right system. He's going to be a good college quarterback. He ends up committing to a no name head coach that was just promoted from offense coordinator named Chris Peterson and ultimately leaves as the winningest quarterback in college football history. So that was one that I put four stars on early, and I said, "Hey, I'm going to ride this one, and we'll see what it gets me." And granted, his NFL career was nothing to write home about, and now he's a you know pretty popular offensive coordinator. Uh, but that was one that that I was pretty happy with, you know, making that kind of that early look at and saying this is a guy that I think is going to be really good, and I think that probably. The other one for me uh, would – gosh, I would probably say it would have to be Robert Woods and – I was on a show with our good friend, Scott Kennedy, who I used to work with the scout yesterday. And, you know, Robert Woods to me is the Mount, is on the Mount Rushmore of Los Angeles football. And he has been, you know, since I saw him when he was a freshman. And I remember his senior year, people kept saying that, oh, well, you know, Keenan Allen's a better receiver or Kyle Prater's a better receiver. And Keenan Allen was actually ranked as the number one safety in that class. Robert Woods was the number one receiver. And I was adamant. Robert Woods was the best football player on the West Coast. And ultimately, I was overruled by some of the people on the recruiting team, and we were. Robert Woods is the number one. I'm sorry, uh, Ronald Powell is the number one player out west, and ultimately the number one player was you know, was Robert Woods. If you look at what he did at USC, look what he's done in the NFL, and that was one that I thought was a no brainer five star, and I thought you know he should be. But we had a lot of people in our own company that were skeptical that he was even the best receiver in that class. Everybody talked about Kyle Prater. And USC fans remember that Kyle Prater was at USC, I think for a year before he transferred to Northwestern. And so I always like to take, Robert Woods on that conversation because there were people that still thought, you know, as good as he is, as great as he is, he's playing at Sarah. He's not playing at the modern days or, you know, the Servites at that time. Servite was the powerhouse in the Trinity League. And I'm like, don't you worry, man. Robert Woods is going to make a lot of people look good and make me look really good. And I just, I fought that fight. And so, granted, I never root against a kid to fail in college. I never rooted against a kid to get hurt. But Ronald Powell's injury-laden career kind of hurt him. And Robert Woods, left that year at the class of the, of the 2010 class out west nobody epitomizes los angeles football over the last 25 years you could say just sean jackson you could say d'anthony thomas but both those guys left la i mean to me robert woods is los angeles football over the last two decades
1: I just wanted to be the quarterback at Sarah with the weapons that were there with Woods and Marquise Lee, George Farmer, and Paul Richardson, four guys that made it to the NFL. What a what a receiving quartet there. Is there a prospect you were shocked didn't go on to a huge NFL career, whether it be injuries or something off the field? Was there someone you, you thought was a can't-miss guy that, that ultimately didn't make it? <laughs>
0: Daryl Scott. You just go a couple years mm-hmm. before that, and I think what – The reason with Daryl Scott, where it hurts me even more is I ranked him as the number one player in the West that year. My number two and my number three were Tyrone Smith and Matt Khalil, who both (laughs) ended up being top 10 picks, who in consecutive drafts were the first offensive lineman drafted. You know, last we saw Tyrone Smith, you know, before some of the other contracts that have been signed since then, he signed the richest deal for an offensive lineman in NFL history. And I mean, he was phenomenal. As a high school player, he was a solid player at USC. I don't know that USC ever got the number two player. I think Matt Khalil had a better collegiate career than Tyrone Smith, but Tyrone Smith had a better NFL career. And I rated Daryl Scott ahead of both those guys. And his freshman year at Colorado, he started to show real signs of being a bust and pretty much was a bust his entire career there. And that's one that I hang over my head, not because of just how poorly he turned out, but then also to know. I could have gone with one of those other two guys and looked really smart in the process
1: of it. <laughs> you know, talking about those big guys, I, I made a joke on a, on our uh, Family Feud podcast but I do have to actually ask you do you have an actual like big baby alert set up with at least the local hospitals up there in the Seattle area to notify you <laughs> when the next top prospect is born because it seems like you have been you, you always have been able to identify players long time even before they're on the the national watch lists and everything before some guys even take a high school varsity snap so how do you go about identifying players early when they may not even have taken those you know high school snaps of guys that we need to follow we need to cover how do you go about that That is there actually a big baby alert?
0: There is no big baby alert. However, (laughs) parents are very proud of their babies, whether they're small, little, whether they're getting big, and they're telling me about their kids when they're in fourth grade or when they're in fifth grade (laughs) or when they're in sixth grade or when they're in second grade or when they're in preschool. Hey, keep an eye on. I'm like, I can't even do the math. I don't even know what year your kid's gonna be graduating, let alone if your kid even can do math, period, because he's not in (laughs) school. But you, you do have with the rise of seven on seven, the rise of a lot of national youth events, you do have a better idea of guys coming in. And, you know, I, I've made this remark a few times over the last few years. I've only watched two youth football films in my entire career. And one of them was a USC player. And that was Julian Simon, because if you saw Julian as an eighth grader, he had a beard and he was a grown man. And I'm like, I got to see what this kid was doing as a youth player. And so I saw him in the spring of eighth grade, watched this film. And if you ever watched the coach Snoop documentary, mm-hmm. my, my guy K Mac is on there, kept saying, man, that running back drove himself to practice. You know, <laughs> Julian Simon, is still young for his grade in an era where quarterbacks are like 19 years old as seniors in high school. I don't think Julian turned 18 until real recently before he got to USC or might have been when he got to USC. And, you know, people thought he was always way older than he really looked. But he was one of the few players that I watched as a middle schooler because I don't want to watch youth film. It doesn't tell you anything (laughs) until they get to high school. But parents are always telling me about the next guy to watch. And so you kind of have to listen because you don't want to be wrong.
1: So you you've uh, you haven't been wrong very often, and that's why it makes you one of the best in the business. I got one final question for you. This is the Herd It on the Sidelines podcast, so I need your best Heard It on the sidelines story. What's the weirdest, craziest thing in a game that you've been covering, or whatever it may be? In uh, you know what what's the craziest thing you've heard on the sidelines?
0: You know I, I hate to talk about high school gossip because it makes me sound like I'm a high schooler. But that said, there was a recruitment about five or six years ago of a kid in. The state of Washington. Who I was on the sidelines at a game, and there was a a certain coach that I think USC fans. This actually would have been probably seven or eight years ago. And there's a certain coach that I think USC fans had had come to to know. He was a part of the USC program for a year and a half as their head coach. Uh, he is no longer there, but he is now in the state uh, of the Lone Star State, if you will. But there was, you know, talk going around about you know some of his. Recruiting, and you know that he was going to leave to take the job at the school in Southern California. And I remember standing at a game. It was the weekend of, gosh, it would have been, must have been the state semifinals. And there was all this conversation going on that you know he was going to to take the head coaching job at USC. And it, it, it ended up being hilarious because if you know one thing about Washington football fans, is they are fiercely loyal. To their program and to their university, and they will never accept anything that could be perceived as a negative slight on their program. They don't. Most fan bases don't handle that well. Maybe some do because they're more self-loathing than others. That when they hear something <laughs> negative about their program, they're like, "Yep, yeah, that's of course that's what's going to happen. That's how we are." But Washington could not believe some of these Washington fans could not believe that there was even a possibility that Steve Sarkisian would leave, and he had just beat. Washington state the day before in the apple cup. And I remember this one guy, he's, t- he kept telling me, you know, we, we were at the se- semifinals. It was at the Tacoma dome. And he kept telling me, listen, you know, I'm a tie club member there is absolutely no way Steve Sarkisian is leaving. There is just absolutely no way. We have made the sweetest deals. He's going to get a big raise, blah, blah, blah. There is no truth to the rumor whatsoever that Steve Sarkeesian is going to leave. And this is before there was even anything. If I remember right, this was on Saturday afternoon. And that Saturday night, USC and UCLA were playing. And there was talk that if Ed Orgeron beat UCLA, he might get the job. So there wasn't even talk about Steve Sarkeesian. But I just remember him going on and on and just adamant. There is no way Steve Sarkisian would leave University of Washington, which is on the rise, for USC, which is just dead in the water. And then 48 hours later, he was gone. And I'm like, well, it doesn't matter how big of a Thai club member you think you are and how much you donate. You can still be wrong because you can't necessarily outbid the heart. And when the heart is staying there. So I always laugh at it because even big rich people who have a lot of power and a lot of money and think they have a lot of control – They can be wrong. So I I thought that was, it may not be the the, the craziest thing I ever heard. There's been other stuff that I've heard that was, you know, way worse and probably not suitable for a family (laughs) podcast like this. But I thought that that one was always fascinating. And I think it tied in really well to USC. And at the end of the day, I think that you know Washington probably upgraded going from Steve Sarkisian to Chris Peterson. And maybe USC has had some years in the wilderness as a result of that. But you think about what that recruiting class turned into when Stark got there and what he brought in in the next six weeks. Mm. I, I think USC fans were, were pretty happy to, to see what he could do and to maybe get some of the stench away from what was an up and down roller coaster ride with Lane Kiffin.
1: Yeah, there's no telling what, what could have happened if Steve Sarkeesian didn't have his off-the-field issues at USC. There's no telling how things would have played out completely differently, but that's uh, that's history and that's college football. Well, Brandon, thanks so much for taking the time. That's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Hurt It on the Sidelines podcast, part of the Peristyle podcast family. I'm your host, Shotgun Spratling, saying thank you once again to Brandon Huffman for joining us, and thanks to all of you for listening. We we'll hope you'll be back to join us for the next episode of the Hurt It on the Sidelines podcast. What's the deal? What's the